This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Man Alive by G. K. Chesterton. Section 19. Part 2. The Explanations of Innocent Smith. Chapter 2. The Two Curates, or the Burglary Charge. Part three. Impossible, repeated the specialist, shutting his eyes. You are sure it's impossible? Oh, dry up, Michael, cried Gould irritably. We'd have found him if we could, for you bet he saw the burglary. Don't you start looking for him. Look for your own Ed in the dustbin. You'll find that after a bit. And his voice died away in grumbling. Arthur directed Michael Moon, sitting down. Kindly read Mr. Raymond Percy's letter to the court. Wishing, as Mr. Moon has said, to shorten the proceedings as much as possible, began Inglewood, I will not read the first part of the letter sent to us. It is only fair to the prosecution to admit the account given by the second clergyman fully ratifies, as far as facts are concerned, that given by the first clergyman. We concede, then, the canon story so far as it goes. This must necessarily be valuable to the prosecutor and also convenient to the court. I begin Mr. Percy's letter, then, at the point when all three men were standing on the garden wall. As I watched Hawkins wavering on the wall, I made up my mind not to waver. A cloud of wrath was on my brain, like the cloud of copper fog on the houses and gardens round. My decision was violent and simple yet the thoughts that led up to it were so complicated and contradictory that I could not retrace them now. I knew Hawkins was a kind, innocent gentleman, and I would have given ten pounds for the pleasure of kicking him down the road. That God should allow good people to be as bestially stupid as that rose against me like a towering blasphemy. At Oxford, I fear, I had the artistic temperament rather badly, and artists loved to be limited. I liked the church as a pretty pattern. Discipline was a mere decoration. I delighted in the mere divisions of time. I liked eating fish on Friday. But then I liked fish, and the fast was made for men who liked meat. Then I came to Hoxton and found men who had fasted for five hundred years, men who had to gnaw fish because they could not get meat, and fish bones when they could not get fish. As too many British officers treat the army as a review, so I had treated the church militant as if it were the church pageant. Hoxton cures that. Then I realized that for eighteen hundred years the church militant had not been a pageant, but a riot, and a suppressed riot. There, still living patiently in Hoxton, were the people to whom the tremendous promises had been made. In the face of that, I had to become a revolutionary, if I was to continue to be religious. In Hoxton, one cannot be a conservative without also being an atheist and a pessimist. Nobody but the devil could want to conserve Hoxton. On top of all this comes Hawkins. If he had cursed all the Hoxton men, excommunicated them, and told them they were going to hell, I should have rather admired him. If he had ordered them all to be burned in the marketplace, I should still have had that patience that all good Christians have with the wrongs inflicted on other people. But there is no priestcraft about Hawkins. 
nor any other kind of craft he is as perfectly incapable of being a priest as he is of being a carpenter or a cabman or a gardener or a plasterer he is a perfect gentleman that is his complaint he does not impose his creed but simply his class he never said a word of religion in the whole of his damnable address he simply said all the things his brother the major would have said a voice from heaven assures me that he has a brother and that this brother is a major when this helpless aristocrat had praised cleanliness in the body and convention in the soul to people who could hardly keep body and soul together the stampede against our platform began i took part in his undeserved rescue i followed his obscure deliverer until as i have said we stood together on the wall above the dim gardens already clouding with fog then I looked at the curate and at the burglar, and decided in a spasm of inspiration that the burglar was the better man of the two. The burglar seemed quite as kind and human as the curate was, and he was also brave and self-reliant, which the curate was not. I knew there was no virtue in the upper class, for I belonged to it myself. I knew there was not very much in the lower class, for I had lived with it a long time many old texts about the despised and persecuted came back to my mind and i thought that the saints might well be hidden in the criminal class about the time hawkins let himself down the ladder i was crawling up a low sloping blue slate roof after a large man who went leaping in front of me like a gorilla this upward scramble was short and we soon found ourselves tramping along a broad road of flat roofs broader than many big thoroughfares with chimney-pots here and there that seemed in the haze as bulky as small forts the asphyxiation of the fog seemed to increase the somewhat swollen and morbid anger under which my brain and body laboured the sky and all those things that are commonly clear seemed overpowered by sinister spirits tall spectres with turbans of vapour seemed to stand higher than the sun or moon eclipsing both I thought dimly of illustrations to the Arabian Nights on brown paper with rich but sombre tints, showing genie gathering round the seal of Solomon. By the way, what was the seal of Solomon? Nothing to do with sealing wax, really, I suppose, but my muddled fancy felt the thick clouds as being of that heavy and clinging substance of strong opaque colour, poured out of boiling pots and stamped into monstrous emblems. The first effect of the tall turbaned vapours was that discoloured look of pea-soup or brown coffee of which Londoners commonly speak. But the scene grew subtler with familiarity. We stood above the average of the housetops and saw something of that thing called smoke, which in great cities creates the strange thing called fog. Beneath us rose a forest of chimney-pots, and there stood in every chimney-pot as if it were a flower-pot a brief shrub or a tall tree of coloured vapour. The colours of the smoke were various, for some chimneys were from firesides and some from factories, and some again from mere rubbish heaps. And yet, though the tints were all varied, they all seemed unnatural, like fumes from a witch's pot. It was as if the shameful and ugly shapes growing shapeless in the cauldron sent up each its separate spurt of steam coloured according to the fish or flesh consumed. Here a glow from underneath, 
were dark red clouds such as might drift from dark jars of sacrificial blood. There the vapour was dark indigo-grey, like the long hair of witches, steeped in the hell-broth. In another place the smoke was of an awful opaque ivory, yellow such as might be the disembodiment of one of their old leprous waxen images. But right across it ran a line of bright, sinister, sulphurous green, as clear and crooked as Arabic. Mr. Moses Gould once more attempted the arrest of the bus. He was understood to suggest that the reader should shorten the proceedings by leaving out all the adjectives. Mrs. Duke, who had woken up, observed that she was sure it was all very nice, and the decision was duly noted down by Moses with a blue and by Michael with a red pencil. Inglewood then resumed the reading of the document. Then I read the writings of the smoke. Smoke was like the modern city that makes it. It is not always dull or ugly, but it is always wicked and vain. Modern England was like a cloud of smoke. It could carry all colors, but it could leave nothing but a stain. It was our weakness and not our strength that put a rich refuge in the sky. These were the rivers of our vanity pouring into the void. We had taken the sacred circle of the whirlwind and looked down on it, and seen it as a whirlpool and then we had used it as a sink. It was a good symbol of the mutiny of my own mind. Only our worst things were going to heaven. Only our criminals could still ascend like angels. As my brain was blinded with such emotions, my guide stopped by one of the big chimney-pots that stood at the regular intervals like lamp-posts along that uplifted and aerial highway. He put his heavy hand upon it, and for the moment I thought he was merely leaning on it, tired with his steep scramble along the terrace. So far as I could guess from the abysses, full of fog on either side, and the veiled lights of red-brown and old gold glowing through them now and then, we were on the top of one of those long, consecutive, and genteel rows of houses which are still to be found, lifting their heads above the poorer districts. The remains of some rage of optimism in earlier speculative builders, Probably enough they were entirely untenanted, or tenanted only by such small clans of the poor as gather also in the old empty palaces of Italy. Indeed, some little time later, when the fog had lifted a little, I discovered that we were walking round a semicircle of crescent, which fell away below us into one flat square or a wide street below another, like a gigantic stairway, in a manner not unknown in the eccentric building of London, and looked like the last ledges of the land but a cloud sealed the giant stairway as yet. My speculations about the sullen skyscape, however, were interrupted by something as unexpected as the moon falling from the sky. Instead of my burglar lifting his hand from the chimney, he leaned on and leaned on it a little more heavily, and the whole chimney-pot turned over like the opening top of an inkstand. I remembered the short ladder leaning against the low wall, and felt sure he had arranged his criminal approaches long before. The collapse of the big chimney-pot ought to have been the culmination of my chaotic feelings, but, to tell the truth, it produced a sudden sense of comedy, and even of comfort. I could not recall what connected this abrupt bit of housebreaking with some quaint but still kindly fancies. Then I remembered the delightful and uproarious scenes of roofs and chimneys in the harlequinades of my childhood, and was darkly and quite irrationally comforted by a sense of unsubstantiality in the scene.
as if the houses were of lath and paint and pasteboard and were only meant to be tumbled in and out of by policemen and pantaloons the law-breaking of my companion seemed not only seriously excusable but even comically excusable who were all these pompous preposterous people with their footmen and their foot-scrapers their chimney-pots and their chimney-pot hats that they should prevent a poor clown from getting sausages if he wanted them one would suppose that property was a serious thing i had reached as it were a higher level of that mountainous and vaporous visions a heaven of a higher levity my guide had jumped down into the dark cavity revealed by the displaced chimney-pot he must have landed at a level considerably lower for tall as he was nothing but his weirdly tousled head remained visible something again far off and yet familiar pleased me about this way of invading the houses of men i thought of little chimney-sweeps and the water-babies but i decided that it was not that then i remembered what it was that made me connect such topsy-turvy trespass with ideas quite opposite to the idea of crime christmas eve of course and santa claus coming down the chimney almost at the same instant the hairy head disappeared into the black hole but i heard a voice calling to me from below a second or two afterwards the hairy head reappeared it was dark against the more fiery part of the fog and nothing could be spelt of its expression but its voice called on me to follow with that enthusiastic impatience proper only among old friends i jumped into the gulf and as blindly as courteous for i was still thinking of santa claus and the traditional virtue of such a vertical entrance in every well-appointed gentleman's house i reflected there was the front door for the gentleman and the side door for the tradesman but there was also the top door for the gods the chimney is so to speak the underground passage between earth and heaven by this starry tunnel santa claus manages like the skylark to be true to the kindred points of heaven and home nay owing to certain conventions and a widely distributed lack of courage for climbing this door was perhaps little used but santa claus's door was really the front door it was the door fronting the universe i thought this as i groped my way across the black garret or loft below the roof and i scrambled down the squat ladder that led us down into a yet larger loft below yet it was not till i was halfway down the ladder that i suddenly stood still and thought for an instant of retracing all my steps as my companion had retraced them from the beginnings of the garden wall the name of santa claus had suddenly brought me back to my senses i remembered why santa claus came and why he was welcome i was brought up in the property classes and with all their horror of offences against property i had heard all the regular denunciations of robbery both right and wrong i had read the ten commandments in church a thousand times and there then at age of forty-four halfway down a ladder in a dark room in the bodily act of burglary i saw for the first time that theft after all is really wrong it was too late to turn back however and i followed the strange soft footsteps of my huge companion across the lower and larger loft till he knelt down on a part of the bare flooring after a few fumbling efforts lifted a sort of trap-door this released a light from below and we found ourselves looking down into a lamp-lit sitting-room of the sort that in larger houses often leads out of a bedroom and is an adjunct to it 
light thus breaking from beneath our feet like a soundless explosion showed that the trap-door just lifted was clogged with dust and rust and had doubtless been long disused until the advent of my enterprising friend but i did not look at this for long for the sight of the shining room underneath us had an almost unnatural attractiveness to enter a modern interior at so strange an angle by so forgotten a door was an epic in one's psychology it was like having found the fourth dimension my companion dropped from the aperture into the room so suddenly and soundlessly that i could do nothing but follow him through for lack of practice in crime i was by no means soundless before the echo of my boots had died away the big burglar had gone quickly to the door half opened it and stood looking down the staircase and listening then leaving the door still half open he came back into the middle of the room and ran his roving eyes round its furniture and ornaments the room was comfortably lined with books in that rich and human way that makes the walls seem alive it was a deep and full but slovenly bookcase of the sort that is constantly ransacked for the purposes of reading in bed one of those stunted german stoves that looked like red goblins stood in a corner and a sideboard of walnut wood with closed doors in its lower part there were three windows high but narrow after another glance round my housebreaker plucked the walnut doors open and rummaged inside he found nothing there apparently except an extremely handsome cut-glass decanter containing what looked like port somehow the sight of the thief returning with this ridiculous little luxury in his hand woke within me once more all the revelation and revulsions i had felt above don't do it i cried quite incoherently santa claus ah said the burglar as he put the decanter on the table and stood looking at me you've thought about that too i can't express a millionth part of what i thought of i cried but it's something like this oh can't you see it why are children not afraid of santa claus though he comes like a thief in the night he is permitted secrecy trespass almost treachery because there are more toys where he has been what should we feel if there were less down what chimney from hell would come the goblin that should take away the children's balls and dolls while they slept could a greek tragedy be more grey and cruel than that daybreak and awakening dog-stealer horse-stealer man-stealer can you think of anything so base as a toy-stealer the burglar as if absently took a large revolver from his pocket and laid it on the table beside the decanter but still kept his blue reflective eyes fixed on my face end of section nineteen